0: Okay, please rise for the reading of God's word. We are in Luke chapter 20. We're going through Luke uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. If you need a Bible, raise your hands. Up here in the front row, we have a request for a Bible. All right. It's great not only to hear the word of God, but to see it in front of our eyes Luke chapter 20, Luke chapter 20, we are in verse 17, Luke chapter 20 verse 17 says, Then he, Jesus, looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone of which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Let's pray. Lord, we read in your word uh, about the kindness and the severity of God. And we want all of you, the knowledge of all of you, the understanding of all of you. Lord, I think of what we read a few weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 43, where it says that we were made, we were formed, we were created to believe you, to know you, and to understand who you are. I pray that you would do that work in our lives. This morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. So here in Luke 20, Jesus has come into Jerusalem for the last time. The last time in his earthly life, 2,000 years ago, the Bible does say he will return in the future. He is here in Luke 20 just days away from his crucifixion from being crucified and he knows that he knows he's going to be crucified. It's a really important point. He knows that it's going to be the religious leaders, the if you will the church leaders who are going to arrest him and who are going to tor- turn him over to the Romans to be crucified. Now, as we're in these couple chapters, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, man, I tell you, if Jesus isn't your hero, he should be. <laughs> he should be for many reasons. But one of the reasons he should be your hero is just his boldness, his boldness and courage that we've just seen in the last Few weeks At the end of chapter 19, Jesus, he comes into the city, he goes right into the temple. He sees people in the temple who have come to Jerusalem to worship God. Actually, it's Passover time, it's feast time. Two million people, the, the population has gone from about a few hundred thousand to a couple million. They've come to Jerusalem to worship God. And he sees people in the temple ripping off the people who have come to Jerusalem to worship God. They're selling things right inside the temple at just outrageous prices. They're actually selling animal sacrifices to them, doves and and sheep, at outrageous prices. And what does he do? He drives them all out. He overturns tables. He creates this massive scene. You talk about boldness. He knows he's going to die but he, he's not going to refuse to do exactly what God has called him to do. And, and he, he gets up, he overturns tables, he, uh, he basically forces everyone out who's ripping people off, and then he declares for all to hear, this house, this temple, this church, if you will, God has meant it to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers, of thieves. And so then at the beginning of this chapter that we're in this morning, chapter 20, the religious leaders come up to him, the, t- the people in charge of the temple, and they say, who are you that you think you can just come right in and do this? Who, are you, what, who gave you this authority to just come in here and, and, and do these things and to say the things that you're saying? What right do you have? Jesus does not answer the question directly. Instead, he tells a parable, and we were in this parable a couple weeks ago hope you enjoyed Pastor Randy last week. Did you enjoy Pastor Randy? All right. A couple weeks ago, we were in the parable of the vineyard, the parable of the vineyard and the vine dressers, vine dressers, people who take care of a vineyard. And Jesus tells this parable and, 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 There's this vineyard owner, a man owned a grape vineyard, and he gives his vineyard to some people who, and he says, take care of it. They're called the vine dressers. And then it says he goes off to a far-off place, and from time to time he sends messengers to get the grapes at harvest time. The messengers are beaten up by the vine dressers, the people that the owner hired to take care of the vineyard. He, uh, th- they beat up the messengers. Finally, the owner says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my own son. I'm going to send my own son. Surely they will respect my son. But when the son gets there, they say, hey, this is the son. If we kill him, this vineyard is going to be ours. Then in verse 15 of Luke 20, it um, it says that they cast out the son. They threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Now the religious leaders are listening to Jesus as they as he is telling them this parable, and they know that Jesus is talking about them. They are the vine dressers. Jesus, know, They know that Jesus, when he refers to these vine dressers beating people up, God's messengers up, the owner's messengers up, they know he's talking about them. Uh, they know that Jesus is the son. They know that the vineyard, it represents Israel, or maybe better put, it represents the people of God, what we call today the church, what has become the church. The religious leaders had been treating God's vineyard like it was theirs. They had been treating God's kingdom, God's people, as if they were their own people. Religious leaders, pastors, priests, they start doing stuff like that. Treating God's sheep as their sheep. God's grapes as their grapes. And then... It says that towards the end of the parable, Jesus looks the leaders right in the eye and he says, after killing the son, what do you think that that vineyard owner is gonna do to the vine dressers, those workers? What do you think he's gonna do to them? And he answers his own question and he says, he will come and he'll destroy them and he'll give the vineyard to others. And what do they say? At the end of verse 16, they say, certainly not, meaning never. God will never take away from us the privilege that we have taking care of this vineyard. He'll never take away from us the privilege of being his workers, the apple of his his eye. It'll never happen. God would never do that to us. And so Jesus responds in verse 17, and that's where we began reading this morning. Let's read it again, verse 17. It says, then he, Jesus, looked at them. We looked at them, again, right in the eye. He looked at them. And he said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him into powder. Here, Jesus is quoting to them an Old Testament psalm, which these people would have been very familiar with. It's a verse from Psalm 118. It's a messianic song, meaning it's a psalm that describes Jesus. It was written 800 years before Jesus came to earth, but it was written describing the future when Jesus would come. And these people he's talking to, they knew it was about the Messiah. They knew it was about the Son of God, the Savior who God had promised. They knew that. The religious leaders knew it the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief corner stone now do yourself a huge favor huge favor do a word study of the word rock or stone in the bible And, and, you know, now with the internet, all we have to go, go is one of these online Bible tools, write the word rock or stone and press boink. And then, you know, all these places where the word rock is used in the Bible comes up. What you will find is that from beginning to end, over and over and over again, the Lord God is referred to as a rock, as a stone. Psalm 18, 31, and who is rock except our God? Psalm 62, 7, God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge. Isaiah 28, 16, I lay in Zion a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious stone corner stone. Over and over again in the Bible and here in Luke uh, chapter 20 verse 17 Jesus quotes another verse from the Old Testament referring to himself to the Son of God, to the Messiah as a stone, referring to God to Jesus as a stone and that he's he's gonna be rejected this is a, a a A psalm predicting that the Messiah would be rejected, but that he would then become the chief cornerstone, a cornerstone. It's the main stone that is used to set a foundation at the bottom of a building. For example, the temple or a synagogue or any, uh, you know, building they, they 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 set a stone, a main stone, and every other stone is measured by that stone, and and it's the it's it's the it's the stone upon which the building is built. Again, verse seventeen, the stone which the builders reject has become the chief cornerstone. And then he says, now whoever falls on that stone, whoever falls on the stone will be broken, and whoever on whom the stone falls, that person will be ground into powder. So this is a tough verse. It's a tough verse, and and let me tell you, there's no easy way around this verse. You You really can't dance around it. That's why we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse at Calvary Chapel, it doesn't let me avoid hard verses. And when I mean hard, I'm not saying it's hard to understand. I mean, I, I mean it's hard to like read. <laughs> it's, it's, and and you'll, you'll understand in a second um, what I mean by that. Jesus, what this verse is saying is when it talks about if the stone falls on you, or a person, that person's gonna be broken, or if a person, uh, rather, if a person falls on the stone, they'll be broken, if the stone falls on them, they'll be grinded into powder. It's a reference to the fact that Jesus is a judge. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus is a judge. He is the judge, with a capital T and a capital J. Jesus is the judge. Deuteronomy uh, uh, 32.4 says this. It says, he is the rock of judgment. Speaking of Jesus, he is the rock of judgment. In the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus, he is the heir of all things, meaning all things are his, and through Jesus, the universe was made. And that he upholds all things by the word of his power. That's what it says about Jesus. A lot of times people think, well, Jesus, is this just this guy in stained glass windows? I see him on a cross. I've heard he resurrected from the dead. It's much more. He is the owner of all things. The Bible says in Hebrews 1, He created the universe. And that all things are upheld by the Word of His power. And guess what? That means, among many other things, you are accountable to him. Meaning you and me, you answer. You must answer and you will answer to Jesus. You're accountable to him. Verse 17 here that we're reading is a prophetic psalm which predicts that Jesus will be rejected, there will be those who reject him, the stone which the builders reject, it says, and those who reject God. Uh, let me th- rejecting God, you know, Jesus came into Jerusalem lowly, riding on a donkey. And in, in some respects, nothing has really changed. Jesus, the Bible says, he shows up at the door of everybody's heart. Meek, knocking on the door of your heart. That's what the Bible says that Jesus does. We either receive him like some did in Jerusalem. There were people who were shouting out Hosanna, recognizing him as the Messiah, and they were receiving him. But others rejected. And those who reject God or reject Jesus they usually fall into one of two different kinds of groups. In other words, you can reject Jesus in two different ways. One way is the way that the religious leaders do. You proactively, you come against Jesus. You come against him. You, 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 you shake your fists at him and say, no way. If you want to see an example of this, go to one of the blogs on the internet that CNN.com or something, they're discussing God. You'll see it in the blog, people writing in. They they are shaking their fists. They're saying, no way. They're being like the religious leaders. They're coming against Jesus. One way to reject him. But there's another way, and it's a more common way, and that's just to ignore him. You just ignore him. You ignore Jesus you you you, you um, just basically say, "Look, you know, get out of my face God i'm going to live my life just the way I want it God's given us God lets us do that he's given us a free will and so here in in verse eighteen, the people who proactively reject Jesus like the religious leaders. They come against them. They attack him. You could say they fall upon him. It says in verse 18, hence the reference there, it says, whoever falls on that stone will be broken. Look, if, if you fall, if you descend upon God or you attack him, their judgment is coming to you. You're gonna be broken. You're gonna be judged is what it's saying. However, if you're one of those who just try to ignore Jesus... Walk away from him. The rest of the verse is about you. It, it, it says on whomever the stone falls, it will grind you into powder. So you have you can either receive Jesus, who's knocking on the door of your heart, or it says you reject him, and, and, and when you reject him, it's, it, it's either going to be you coming against him, Falling upon him, and in which case you're going to be broken, you're going to be judged, or it's just ignoring him and, and, and trying to uh, walk away from him, which is a crazy thing. The, David in one, Psalm 139 says, even when I try to run away to hell, he's there with me. It's a crazy thing to try to run away from God. But people try to do it all the time. I did it for the first 24 years of my life. But either way, it says, you're going, "If you fall on the stone, if you come against them, you'll be judged, and if you walk away from them, the the stone is going to come upon you." Jesus is a judge. The Bible says. But we did read in Luke chapter nineteen that as he approached Jerusalem, we saw a different characteristic or a different part of God's character. We saw Jesus weeping. He weeps. Jesus says, in, to says why? Why did Jesus weep? We talked about this. Jesus wept, says in uh, verse 33 of Luke 19, because the people in Jerusalem did not recognize the day of their visitation. Their visitation from who? God. Jesus, he is the judge. Jesus, he's also a savior. His, his name means savior. Jesus means Jehovah saves. When the angel Gabriel came to Joseph, he says, you name your child Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. He's a savior. He's a judge. He wept over Jerusalem because they did not recognize the coming of their savior. He came to be received by them as a savior. Instead, they came against him or they ignored him. Either way, they rejected him. So Jesus weeps because he knows what rejecting God's savior means. He knows what's going to happen. I put up this verse a couple weeks ago. I'm going to put it up again. It says this. Jesus knows this. Why is he weeping? Because he knows, John three thirty six that anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life, but anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's judgment. The Bible says the whole world is under God's judgment until... They receive the son. If they don't, they remain under his judgment. Jesus wept because he knew that. He knew it. Rejecting God's savior, whether you reject him by attacking him or you reject him by ignoring him, it's a serious thing. Because guess what? Your life is really not your life. It's God's life. Parents, sometimes you may hear your kids along the way say, well, this is my life. Don't tell me what to do. It's my life. If they say that to parents, you correct them and say, it's not your life. It's God's life. Let's make that one thing clear. Quit talking about your life as if, as if it's your life. It's not your life. It's God's life. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's not a hard thing. Jesus says, it's an easy thing. Take my life upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is life. light. rather. It's a, it, it, it's a beautiful thing. God's a savior. He's a judge. The Bible teaches that God has given you a choice to receive him as a savior or receive him as a judge. You don't want, to receive him as a judge. Verse 17, or rather 18, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, judged, but on whomever it falls, they will be ground into powder. Speaking of people who receive Jesus as judge rather than as savior. Let's continue, verse 19. So you have these people listening to Jesus. He's looking them right in the eye and he's, he's speaking so boldly to him talk about a guy with in your face boldness in verse 19 it says the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him they wanted to 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 lay hands on him they wanted to arrest him they wanted to basically take him and drag him out of there but they feared the people for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. Verse 20, it says they watched him, they watched Jesus and sent spies who pretended to be good, to be righteous and they, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governors. By the way, if you receive Jesus as Savior, uh, the Bible says, and give your life to them. There will be those who watch you. Jesus is being carefully watched here. There will be people who watch you. And don't get mad at them. Consider it a privilege to be watched. <laughs> at your work, in your family, in your neighborhood, they will be watching you looking for a misstep. Looking for a mistake on your part, so they can accuse you. And when that happens, you'd say, "Oh, wow, this is a privilege." Same thing happened to Jesus, Luke chapter twenty, verse uh, verse twenty. Then it says in verse twenty one, it says that then they asked him. Well, rather, let's 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 go again, again in verse twenty. It says they watched him, and then they sent spies who pretended to be righteous, they pretended to be good, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver them into the authorities. Verse 21. And so these spies, they come up to Jesus, these people pretending to be his friends, but they weren't his friends. And they come up to him and they ask him, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly. And you do not show personal favoritism. I like the King James. It says... that. Jesus didn't care about man. Not meaning that he didn't love them, but he didn't care if a person was incredibly poor or incredibly rich. He didn't care. We have the watered-down translation here which says he didn't show personal favoritism. But you teach the way of God in truth. So they're just they're just laying it on. It's smooth words. Uh, the, the Bible says in, the, uh, in Proverbs, is this Proverbs? Psalms, rather, 55, 55, 21. His words are as smooth as butter, but his heart is at war. That's what these people were. They were at war with him, uh, but their words now, they're smooth. They're like, oh, you know, you just, you don't care about whether someone's rich or poor, a bad or good person. You don't show favoritism. You teach the way of God. You're, You're really cool, Jesus. But we have a question for you, verse 22. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? You can just put in there, instead of Caesar, Obama. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Obama or not, and then it says, Jesus perceived their craftiness. He knew they were trying to trick him. He knew they were trying to trick him. Why? Because there were some Jews, some some people in the crowd, who thought, you know, the Obama, the president, the emperor at that time, uh, the George Washington, if you will was Nero, and he was one wicked dude. He actually made people bow down to him and worship him. He would put people into the Colosseums and have them, put, give them both swords and they would hack each other to death. They would just kill each other, and with 70,000 people cheering on. And so there were certain religious Jews who said, you know, it's evil to pay taxes. We should never do that. Our, you know, our, our, our hands will be stained. There's Christians like that today who say similar things. That was one group of people. But there was another group of people who said, who, who really believed, hey, this is great under Rome. We love being the government. We love Obama. We love our roads. We love being uh, secure because he protects us with a military. We like the bridges. We like if someone wrongs us, we can go into one of uh, uh, Caesar's courts. We like that. And so this question, they're trying to trap him. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? So in other words, whatever way he answers, he's going to get half the people angry. And he says, you're just trying to trick me. He perceived their craftiness, it says there in verse 23. He says, why do you test me? Verse 24, show me a denarius. A denarius was their their penny. Whose image and inscription does it have? In the book of Mark, it actually says they brought one to him. He's showing it to him. Whose inscription does this penny, this denarius, have on it? It says they answered and they said, Caesars, Obamas. His head's right on there. And Jesus said to them, well then render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Give to Obama the things that are Obama's and to God the things that are God's is what he's saying. In other words, you have roads, you have bridges, you have courts, you have a military they deserve to be paid. Pay them their taxes. But you give to God what is God's. Now, what's really interesting is that, that particular coin, that particular coin, the denarius, there was an image on it of the head of Caesar, kind of like a penny has the head of, it's Abraham Lincoln, right? Yeah, Abraham Lincoln. And uh, uh, But on the one hand, there's just a big head, you know, Of uh, of Caesar. But on the other side of this penny, there was actually someone bowing down to Caesar with the little Latin words uh, uh, that said Pontius Maximum, which means supreme pontiff or high priest. And so when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's, what he's saying is this. By all means, you give Caesar the taxes, but don't give Caesar what belongs to God. Render render to Caesar your taxes, but give to God your life. That's what he's saying. Your life. It's just we keep on coming back to this theme God is relentless. He's just relentless. The last few chapters on this theme that the world, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And you owe him your life. He loves you. That's why he lived a perfect life and he died for you. But because he loves you and wants your life, he wants it all. He wants every part of it, every little part of it. He wants your life. Render to Caesar what are Caesars. Render to God what is God's. That's your whole life. You know, I remember when I first became a Christian, um, it was 25 years ago, and I began walking with the Lord. And, uh, uh, you know, during the first few years, I began to realize that though I had given my life to Jesus, really, I was treating my life like my own, and things started to happen to me just and, and, and I, I realized I had given all the big things in my life. I had big issues with sexual morality with a very violent temper and i I, I used to just you know real big time bondage with those things, but you know, th- those things, by the grace of God, they passed away, but there were little things, and, and I would find myself watching TV, just all by myself, I'm watching TV, and I, I all of a sudden, something comes on the TV, and I'm like, oh, wait a second, how can I say that my life is God's life, and sit here, and watch this. The Bible says Psalm 101 verse three, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. How can I sit here and, and keep this TV on? And, and I remember the first time I actually went and turned off the TV And and, and I'm telling you, it was the hardest thing in the world. It was like five muscle bound WWF wrestlers were trying to prevent me from doing it. You know, these three guys with huge tattoos and long hair, you know, look, ah, you know. And it was the hardest thing in the world to just turn the TV off in recognition that my life is no longer my own. Or Steffi and I would be in a theater. And, and I would be, we'd be looking at something and I'd be, how can I say that my life is God's life and stay in this theater? But only like really creepy weirdos get up and leave. Only religious fanatics do stuff. I, I can't. I had to get up. And leave the theater and it was like a pack of mules trying to get me to you know fighting against me. And you know something it's not like there's a law. <laughs> yeah, I can t- keep the the Bible says when I'm under grace after I give my life to God I'm no longer under the law. I can keep the TV on. That doesn't dis-child me. That doesn't mean I'm no longer a child of God. I can I can stay in the movie theater. But what I learned, it became such a disrupt when I just stayed in the movie theater, kept the TV on when I knew I should turn it off, it just disrupted my fellowship with my Lord. I knew I wasn't under the law anymore, but I had to start living according to the decision that I had made to give my life to Jesus. Give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God's what is God's, your life. Verse 27, it says, then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection, who deny that anyone, uh, that there's a life after death, came to Jesus and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, okay, get ready for some weirdness here. The Old Testament, Moses, the reference to Moses, is a reference to the first five books of the Bible. It teaches us that if a man's brother dies and he has a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. You know, that's what the law was. That's what the laws was. You had a brother, he was married, he didn't have kids, he died. His wife was your wife. And just like Jasmine was saying, it wasn't a suggestion, it was a command. (laughs) Verse 29, now there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as a wife and he died childless. Then the third took her and in like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Verse 33, therefore, in the resurrection or in heaven, whose wife is she? All seven had her as a wife. So these guys, they don't believe in the afterlife. They don't believe in the resurrection. And, 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 and what they're doing here, their object, uh, objective here was not to get an answer from Jesus. Their objective was to get everyone around to mock him. Again, same with you. You decide to follow Jesus. You will get people singling you out in a crowd, trying to mock you. So they're trying to mock him. They're they're trying to you know, oh, <laughs> there's you know this poor woman goes to heaven. She's like. Oh, no, there's Bill. I haven't seen him in 20 years. There's Felix. You know, there's Sergio. There's Emilio. There's Bob. What am I going to do? You know, and, 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 you know, they're just trying to get people to mock Jesus. They'll do the same thing to you. What does Jesus say? Verse 34. Now, I prefer Matthew and Luke. And I prefer the King James and rather, I prefer Matthew and Mark. And the parallel accounts in those, Jesus right up front and says, he says, you are mistaken. And and, And at the end of the book of Mark, he goes, you are greatly mistaken. And the King James, it says, you do err. I love that. You do err. I don't know exactly what that means but apparently I said something wrong Uh, in verse 34 Jesus explains to them they're trying to mock him they're going to walk away like dogs with their tail between their legs you don't fight God don't fight God you're going to lose so miserably if you don't believe it read on here with me the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage meaning yes today in this age on the earth people marry that's true Verse 35, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given to marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. In the book of Matthew, it says they become like angels. They don't become angels, they become like angels. So what he's saying is in heaven... There is no marriage. So this woman's not going to have any confusion when she gets to heaven. Heaven's going to be, we are going to be so focused on the Lord. It's not that we're not going to recognize other people. But we're going to have such undivided hearts towards the Lord. Marriage as an institution, it won't even be necessary. God in the book of Genesis said, it's not good that man is alone. And he gave Eve to Adam. But in, 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 in heaven, Not necessary, Jesus says. But then he says he doesn't stop there. And here's why you don't argue with Jesus. Because he won't just stop answering your question. He will proceed from there and really, really show you your place. And that's what he does here in verse 37. He says, but even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. For all live to him, meaning everyone's answerable to him. And so what he's saying here, it says the Sadducees, this particular religious group, they just believed in the first five books of the Bible. No no other books. So Jesus, he, Jesus course, who wrote those five books, (laughs) you know, Moses was just the instrument, He, 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 he points out, look, in those first five books that you guys believe in, you say you believe in, Moses called God, Moses called God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He called them, he called God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at a time where those people, those three men had been dead for hundreds of years. You guys are walking around saying, ooh, we are so smart. We're so wise. Actually, the Sadducees were highly educated. They were rich, and they were very powerful, and it was just not cool to believe the the whole Bible. Some things never change. Uh, But anyway, um, and, and, and he's saying, he's saying you claim to believe those first five books, but look, it says very clearly there that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive 500, 600 years after they died when Moses is speaking to God. Verse 38, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living, for all live to him. And I like the book of Matthew, which Jesus also says to them, you know, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Luke was being a little nicer here. You don't know the scriptures, even the ones you say you believe in, or the power of God. Verse 39, then some of the scribes answered and said, teacher, you have spoken well. The reason they said that was because some of them did believe. The Pharisees, for example, did believe in the resurrection. Verse 40, but after they, after, they, after that they dared not question him anymore. You don't go to God fighting against him, arguing against him about what his own word says. So at this point on, no one's gonna come and try to trick him anymore. They know they're gonna lose that argument. So we have communion this morning. And I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up And, you know, the Bible says before you have communion, it says that, it says that, you know, you need to examine your life before you go to communion. It says, communion, there's the cup, it represents the blood of Jesus. And communion, there's the bread, it represents his broken body. And, you know, as I read here about these Sadducees, they didn't believe the the scripture or they didn't know the scripture and it says they didn't know about the power of God. I meet so many Christians who believe in a, more or less in the way they live their life, they believe in a dead God. The Bible teaches that Jesus resurrected from the dead and that he is alive and that he's not only alive he is powerful i meet so many christians who there is no demonstration in their life that they even believe in the power of god they 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 live in such a state of 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 fear and of anxiety and almost paralysis because they really don't believe that the situation that they're in, that God, the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can do anything about it. And let me tell you, I speak to my own heart as well. The Bible says we all have unbelief that resides in our fallen bodies. Before we take communion, we we have a time of prayer. Actually, if you've been asked to pray, please come up when we go to the communion table, we don't want to go to the communion table remembering Jesus' blood and his broken body when we're in sort of this state where we're in such a a, a place of fear, anxiety, and paralysis. We're not... Appreciating Jesus for what he did on the cross and his resurrection. We don't want to go to the communion table. We want to go to the communion table with the remembrance that wow, he died for my sins, his blood was poured out and then he was raised for my justification. He was raised to pour out power. The Bible says that um, when Jesus, after he was rec- resurrected from the dead, in the first few days after, it says the disciples were terrified and they hid. (laughs) Who are they terrified by? Man. Some things never change. We get paralyzed by the fear of man. That's what happens to us. But in Acts chapter two, after the resurrected Jesus poured out his spirit, it says that they were just filled with the power of God, and it says they spoke boldly and they lived boldly for him and One of the reasons we take communion is just to remember and return to that place where lord you 're right i 'm not living by your power I'm not, I, 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 you died for me, you rose for me, and I, I have neglected that and 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 as the worship team begins let 's prepare our heart for communion. And when they begin, you can either come up and and pray. If there's some area of your life that you just need to recognize the power of God and you've been paralyzed, come up, we'll pray for you. I'll be up here. We can pray for you. Or perhaps you've never received Jesus as Savior. The Bible says that we're not born children of God we become children of God just as when Jesus rode into Jerusalem lowly riding on a donkey that we receive him because he's doing the same thing today. He humbly and lowly comes to us and he knocks on the door of of our hearts. If you have never opened up your heart and received the Savior Jesus, do so this morning because you don't want to have to receive him as a judge and if you die today not having received him as a savior the Bible says you will receive him as a judge you don't want that you do not want that those who fall on the stone will be broken. Those who the stone will fall upon will be uh, grinding in the powder. It's a reference to God's judgment. You don't want that. Receive him as a savior if you never have. But otherwise, just a time for prayer for all of us as we pray for communion. And that at your leisure, you can just go to the back. There's three communion tables back there. Grab a cup a piece of bread, return to your seat, and we'll have communion together. So the worship team will begin. You can come up and pray, and let's have communion.